0: As the CEO of the company, people need to feel your passion. They need to feel your enthusiasm. They also need to feel like, hey, when something isn't right, um, and they also need to know that you got their back.
1: Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallra. Today's episode is an extra fun one for me. When you're a college student, you spend time with lots of people, and you tend to wonder what they will do as they go off into the world. I've known today's guest, Eric Korum, since our days at Texas A&M. I'm excited to share Eric's journey from coaching at multiple elite Power Five schools to the NFL, and eventually taking on funding to launch his business, Aim Seven. I'd like to welcome Eric Corum, Doctor Eric Korum, to uh, the In the Thick of It podcast. I've known you since we were both what 18 so calling you doctor is it's a little bit foreign
0: (laughs) you don't have to call (laughs) me doctor that's like an academic setting only i'm not an md
1: oh man well thanks so much for making time would you just maybe take a minute and kind of introduce yourself
0: yeah so first of all scott thank you for having me on the show we have known each other since we were 18 a lot has changed you know you grow up you learn you adapt You have a family, you have a business. So there's a lot of things that have changed. But yeah, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I went to Texas A&M. That's where we met. We were in Aggie men's club. I was a walk-on football player. Got really interested in human performance. Went on to have a 16-year career in the NFL, college football, and started as a traditional strength and conditioning coach. Then I introduced sports science to American sports in 2011. So if you've ever watched an NFL game and they show a player running down the field and they're like, oh... So-and-so is running 20 miles an hour. I pioneered that technology when I was at Florida State. Really interesting time because, you know, this did not exist in the U.S. I went to Australia, brought this technology back. I'm like, these little devices were putting on the players connected to GPS satellites and accelerometers and all this stuff. And we had millions of data points. And uh, so much so that I had to hire a former NASA propulsion engineer to help us organize the data, but it was just data. And I think you'll find this interesting. Coach Fisher comes to me after the first week. Jimbo Fisher was the head coach at the time. He's like, all right, Eric, how are we going to use this? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) That did not go over very well.
1: We spent time and money and we have a lot of data, but we don't know what to do with it.
0: Right, And so actually... I'll tell you the real story. He said it was practice hard. And I was like, I think so. And he was like, basically shut the front door. And so I was like, I'm going to shut my mouth. And what we did was, is for the first time ever, we quantified the game of football. What actually happens in a game? What actually happens in practice? We found two things. And this translates to business. If you think about where this is going, if you want to be elite, you have to reverse engineer success. So we didn't even know what the game was. We found out, number one, we had elite coaches and elite players. We were killing ourselves. We were practicing four to five games worth of volume during the week, and we were just dead on Saturday. Number two, there was multiple things. But the second biggest one is, although all these different positions had unique demands, like a receiver playing core four special teams may sprint, like actual high-speed sprinting 2,000 yards in a game. They may cover 6,000 total yards. A lineman would sprint less than 100 yards in a game. And most of the time, that was going from the sideline to the field. It's just a different job. But they were trained all the same. So anyways, we changed the way that we practiced. We modified it, I should say. We used a lot of coordination of like, hey, this is tired. Let's keep his pitch count down, you know, rep count, all this kind of stuff. Next season, we had an 88% reduction in injury. Our team went from nine wins to 13 wins and won a championship. NFL flew in after the season, They're like, all right, what's happening here? And it led to opening a multi-billion dollar market for sports wearables and data in the U.S.
1: So real quick, you were there yeah. for the Florida State National Championship.
0: I left Uh-oh. right before it. I was there for the ACC Championship and Orange Bowl, but Mark Stoops offered me a job at Kentucky. So very weird. I show up as the speed coordinator and nutrition coordinator and then after the first season the director of football operations resigns he retires really and this is like the gm essentially i'm just turned 30 jimbo asked me to take over this role this is a massive role i'm I'm managing and running a 300 million dollar football organization i was like look i'll do it if you name me director of sports science and football operations he's like yeah you can call yourself whatever you want like he didn't (laughs) That title didn't exist. And so it opened the door for me to do some really cool things. So I've always been pushing the limits on things. But then that job at Kentucky was an amazing opportunity. So nobody had ever done what's called high performance, where they run strength conditioning, sports medicine, psychology. They manage it all. And Mark was like, yes, and he tripled my salary. So I had to take it. And Jimbo didn't blame me. There was like an interview. He's like, well, the SEC wins again. You know, (laughs) they got deep pockets. And so I went there, got a PhD while I was there. If working full time in the SEC wasn't enough. And I noticed something in sports that no matter what sport, I'd also worked 14 years in pro track and trained multiple Olympic gold medalists. And whether you were an elite football player or track athlete they all kind of had the same commonality. They could adapt to stress faster than anybody else, physical and psychological. And so I wanted to understand what drove adaptation. And so my research was how to sleep impact our ability to adapt to stress. And we did some amazing stuff there, some really cool foundational research that's now part of my company, AIM7, went on to be in the NFL. And then in 2019, I'm kind of, bow on this i got really curious about the consumer wearable market you know you got all these people with these devices the apple watch and fitbits yeah like but do they actually know how to use the data the answer is no right now we're spending 265 billion dollars a year in the u.s on health and fitness and 20 billion a year on uh, wearables but chronic disease diabetes obesity are skyrocketing and longevity for the first time in a very long time is declining in the U S
1: when you say longevity, you mean people's lifespans?
0: Yeah. They're not living as long and health span. There's, you know, health span, like how healthy are those years and then lifespan and lifespan is actually doing this going down and first world countries are continuing to accelerate upwards. And arguably, no matter what you believe about health insurance, whatever, we still have an excellent healthcare system compared to other countries where you can have access to medical care. So I'm like, huh, this is interesting. So long story short, I'm an academic. We started doing a bunch of pilots and testing and we, we asked people, what do you want from your wearable? Like, what is it that you actually want? The number one response we got was more energy. This thing could give me more energy. We're like, cool. So we set out to be like, can we predict somebody's energy level with an apple watch and some other data sets and not only could we do that we could predict their energy and mood state multiple days in advance and we had those models validated by some machine learning experts at nc state and that's what started aim seven and um started that really dug into it in late 2020 went full time had a lot of bumps in the road a lot of ups and downs i'm sure we'll get into We are in the thick of it, but we are now at an inflection point where it's working. And we rolled this out in mid-February to paying customers. We have a 94% conversion rate to paying customers. Our daily active user rate is 3x better than the market average. Our retention rates are 80% plus after 30 days. An elite world-class app is 20%. And so we're the data... After 30 days, the average person now is experiencing a 31% reduction in stress. They're doing 38% more workouts. And we have a very active audience, a very active user base. And we've actually found that our long-term value is enterprise. And we're rolling out a platform solution here this coming month to uh, fitness studios in three markets in Texas. So there's some really cool stuff going on. But you were there for some of the big bumps in the road or like, this sucks. This is not (laughs) what I had in mind. Now we've stabilized and it's really cool to have people go use it and be like, this is changing. We're getting these emails. I'm a more present parent right now. I'm more mindful. My resting heart rate's down 10 beats a minute in the first month. I'm actually managing and coping with stress. My weight, I'm losing weight. Like Just these amazing stories are flooding in. You're like, okay, we got something good. But it took two years to get there
1: well anything tech related takes time so yeah i definitely want to dig more into the business side of things but i actually want Mm -hmm. to go backward for a minute Mm. you mentioned earlier you grew up in dallas talk to us a little bit about how you grew up what was your home like what'd you do after school did you go to public private school what was life like for eric as a kid
0: yeah both my parents were entrepreneurs my mom, Sandy Quorum, is the owner of the Festive Kitchen, which it's so funny. I can't talk to almost anybody that grew up in Dallas that hasn't didn't like grow, especially if you're in the park cities or Highland Park, didn't grow up on her food. But um, she started that business out of a 400 square foot kitchen over a racket club. She was baking brownies for a hamburger shop called Chuck's Hamburgers. And um, she was a registered nurse with no formal training. And now she has a very large catering and food manufacturing company. She's in Central Market. She's everywhere. She's got four or five locations in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But I grew up on the weekends during the school year, I was working catering events on Saturday. My mom put me to work. In the summer, I was working. Did you wear like a a bow tie and jacket? For a lot of times, she stuck me in the back. She didn't (laughs) give me the glamorous jobs. She always made me like I was the person that helped load everything up. I would be in the back washing dishes, breaking stuff down. Most of the waiters were older and she would do a lot of high profile events. Like eventually she got to the point where she's doing like Troy Aikman's wedding, Emmett Smith, you know, these were her regular clients. And so an 18, 16, 18 year old kid is not going to be out there. It's going to be somebody that presents a little bit better.
1: Okay. So your dad was an entrepreneur too.
0: Yeah. He was an author, investigative journalist. I would say One of the core values that was never really verbally articulated, but in our family was hard work. One thing my parents always talked to me about was like the parable of the talents. Like if God gives you a talent, you're supposed to use it to your maximum capability. And laziness was not acceptable. And it it instilled in me a really, you know, hard core work ethic. I was an overweight kid, got picked on a lot bullied a whole lot growing up and that kind of created this obsession inside of me to like make myself better and i remember like i would mow lawns and save up money to buy books on how to train my body how to get faster i would pay for speed camps i mean this is like before this stuff was easily accessible how old are you at
1: this point 12
0: 13 yeah about that age, I remember going to the Bob Ward speed camp in SMU, actually Trinity Christian Academy hosted a speed camp. I was a big kid, but I'm just like, I'm reading all these books that the time I go to Barnes and Noble about like sports speed. That was Dr. Bob Ward's book. He was the, one of the first real performance coaches in the NFL. Then the Nebraska Cornhuskers started putting out stuff, uh, Husker power. And so I was just fascinated with how to improve my body. So fitness has been a part of your life since the beginning. It has, but I wasn't, I didn't have great genetics. I had to work really, really, really hard to just make marginal improvements. And uh, I tore my pec in high school. That set me back. I had a lot of- that like a
1: weight room injury?
0: Man, it was bizarre. It was, but my brother, who doesn't look anything morphologically like me he's a very slight built he's a filmmaker six weeks before his wedding he's warming up on bench press boom blows the same exact so it was a genetic something around the attachment point or whatever and he wasn't bench pressing a ton of weight so you know it was always like i was having to fight uphill battle and then i go to AM at a time when they were like just loaded with talent but I chose that. I could have gone and played, you know, one double A football. And I had an offer to go to University of California, San Diego, one double A, great program. My mom was like, no way. And then AM, a guy named Coach Ray Dorr, who actually died of ALS, he called and said, hey, would you want to come and walk on here? And I'm like, heck yeah. And so I didn't know a ton about AM. I grew up in the era where Nebraska football and Notre Dame were on TV every Saturday. And I just didn't really follow any in. Well, in 1998, they won the Big 12 championship. And I was like, I saw them in the Cotton Bowl the previous year. I was like, man, this is pretty sweet. And then my dad took me down. They were like, this is awesome. So I still had to try out, made the team. And that was four hard but wonderful years. Made some amazing friendships and really got to test myself physically, mentally every day because, Scott, I don't know if you ever know this, but we have a big spring game every year. Or in a white game. And by no means do I think I'm a really great athlete, okay? But going into my junior year, starting right guard gets hurt. They bump me up. And they're like, all right, Eric, you're going to start. And guess who's in front of me? Ty Warren, ninth overall pick in the NFL <laughs> draft. I graded out like 85%, which is super high. I go in to meet with the offensive line coach. He's like, Eric, I cannot believe it. Like you had a phenomenal game by all stretches of the imagination. That would have been a winning grade in the big 12, like a major game. But he's like, but you're not going to play next year. I'm like, wait a second. It's like, I just went out against one of the best players in college football. And it was just like, they didn't have a vision for me to do anything. And that was kind of the deal. Well, then Ironically, I ended up working with that offensive line coach at another university and, and I love him to death. But hopefully you gave him a lot of crap about that. I never brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, Coach Slocum gets fired. They bring in Francione, and Francione, they move me to defensive line, and they're like, Hey, you you actually can do some things. And I remember the D-line coach Dan Egan saying, you know, if you would have played here all four years, you really could have done something. And I was like, Wow. And so I got a little bit of playing time, but it was more like a validation of like, I, I really wasn't like my thought, like, look, you have to realize like this person is here and I am here. And you have to have a very realistic view on reality. But like, you know, I wanted to be in the fight, you know what I'm saying? And to see some reward for my effort. But if I hadn't gone through that, I never would have ended up on the career path I'm on now.
1: What was Playing in the NFL part of your dream or something that you thought about at all?
0: No, I never. I knew I was never going to play in the NFL. There are some people that are very disillusioned. And that was one of the things, you know, like working with college athletes, these guys, like, I want to go to the league. I'm like, you're not going to the league. Like, and even teammates, like, I'm going to the league. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, they just weren't self-aware. Like, there is a difference. And I was at that level. And quite frankly, some of those guys you look at and you're like, man, they don't look like NFL players, but cognitively they're at entirely another level. At that level, things happen so fast. space collapses. The first game I was ever on the sidelines for, it literally looked like a train wreck. Because like, a guy would catch the ball and it was like a vacuum. <laughs> space would close so quick and the hits were so violent. And the guys that succeed can anticipate faster than anybody else. They are moving, like, especially linebackers. Like, some of the times you watch these old videos of Ray Lewis as he's in his 10th year, 11th year. He's not fast anymore, but he is getting to the ball because he is anticipating. And I think that skill carries over to business. It's instinct, it's instinct, it's repetition, it's training. You know, they're watching film, they're preparing, they're, you know, guys would say would see an alignment, they would see a movement, they're like this is what's happening. Even though there's somebody else across the line from them, that is their job is to make their day really tough. And the opponent is trying to window dress everything. They are understanding what's happened based off a of pattern recognition. And I think the same thing happens in, in business and investing and all that kind of stuff.
1: I listen to a podcast, and it's gonna. Kinda- kill me because I can't remember who was being interviewed, but the guy talked about pattern recognition. Like that was his strength Mm -hmm. was pattern recognition. And that's what helped him build and and blow up his business.
0: If Charlie Munger is somebody to study for that.
1: And uh, who was he again?
0: So Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. So if you don't know, Charlie Munger is, he's probably one of the greatest thinkers of our day, one of the most prolific investors ever. But he They are ruthless about their pro, like we do. We do not, we are more patient than everybody else, and like we are less stupid than everybody else. They really think deeply about things. Like a lot of people, when they acquire companies, are looking for value, bargain value for mediocre companies. And they're like, no, 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 we're looking for value for quality. And they have stuck with that thesis over time and they have made a fortune because of it. And they've made mistakes, but. If you want to grow as a thinker, I highly, highly recommend you read the works of Charlie Munger, learn about his heuristics. From Munger has come like a whole group of people like Annie Duke. There's a lot of people that study these decision-making models, these mental models. So the view of the world and what's happening is is at another level.
1: Before we get too deep into business, Mm -hmm. you've got kids. Yeah. You played college sports at a big D one program and Your wife Uh also?
0: Yeah, she was an All-American at Mississippi State, so she was like a bazillion times better (laughs) than me.
1: (laughs) So you guys both got to play post-high school at a high, high level. Big 12 Mm -hmm. at the time for you, SEC for her. Does that play into how you parent your kids and how you look at sports with them? Like, is is that in your minds? Hey, you know, we want to see our kids be, do you want athletes?
0: No. I want my kids to be Excellent at whatever they do. So, my oldest son, he's very creative. He's an engineering type. He's an artist. I just want him to find fulfillment in that and to maximize his skill set and to be supported in whatever way he can. Because your children are just very different. You know this. My middle son, he hit the genetic lottery. He's like, two years old doing back flips and just cr- my wife and I knew that he was physically gifted when we were at one of the, we've been all seven, eight states during our marriage, but one day he jumps off of a bed and lands on the ground and sticks it. I think he's like barely two. And we're like, huh. And we go to the older son, do that. He just collapses. And I look up my wife. I'm like, uh Oh, and like that, you know, a year later, he's doing backflips and all this kind of stuff. And like, he's really into sports, but we don't have to tell him he is practicing all the time. Like he'll watch Machado or he'll watch somebody make a play and he'll literally go outside and mimic it over and over and over and over. It's just like how he's wired with the other ones. They're like trying to create and build. And and so I think our purview on what X like he gets another level of coaching for my wife stuff that most seven, eight year olds are never, but he gets nuanced coaching and she also holds him to a really high standard. But at the same time, we love him up. We want him to have fun. We want him to just go out there and play and enjoy and know that like most likely he won't be a college baseball player or athlete. That is the statistical likelihood that he won't. We don't want him to burn out. We don't want him to regret these things. We don't want That's what most parents are doing is they're crushing their kids. Research demonstrates that if you do want them to be elite, they should do multiple sports and have frequent breaks. Aaron Judge was a three sport athlete in high school. Every year at the NFL, you watch draft. I guarantee you, Scott, go to a Google search and they will go through. ESPN does it almost every year and they list out all the multi sport athletes. If you specialize early, that is a recipe for disaster. So our sons do jujitsu, baseball or the older son does jujitsu and then like whatever else that's this family sport. He's been doing it seven years, the middle son, jujitsu, baseball, football. We have them go out and play golf. We go to just games and activities as a family, but we're not trying to raise our kids to be androids. No. Well, I'm glad to hear
1: that because I think way too many parents are focused on college scholarship and my kid's going to sign a seven figure deal. After they graduate from college. And that's just not reality for
0: it's a fraction of a percent mom and dad. If you're listening, please don't do that. It's the wrong move.
1: As an aside here at Venn, we have two former college athletes and they're some of our top performers. I think that there's
0: great teammates, huh?
1: They, They absolutely. It's the roll up your sleeves, whatever it takes. That's not my job does not exist in their world. And I would love to hire more former college athletes. So
0: you should get into a pipeline.
1: Is there something out there? Is there like a. Oh, heck yeah. Okay.
0: You can go to the athletic departments and they have people that are, their job is to like help them with interviews and job placement. And I think the one thing that if you're interested in that, just know that there may be a learning curve because literally their job, especially the higher level has been to be excellent at that thing. And they go to school. It's hard to do both. My GPA, granted, I was not excellent.
1: One of my questions was going to be, tell me about you as a student. Were you a strong student? Let's, here <sighs> we go.
0: Coming out of A&M, I was exercise science, exercise phys. I had a two eight. The only reason I got into grad school at Arkansas was I got a really good GRE score. And then it was like everything changed. I learned how to do very productive, deep work, and I was in love with what I was doing, and I was obsessed. I was going to ask,
1: was there a difference in the curriculum that you were just more drawn to, more interested in the graduate work?
0: Well, A&M, it was hard, first of all. It was really hard. I was not mature. There's a lot of things I, in college where I was very immature now that I look back, and I think everybody is, but like I really, like, there were some areas that I could have stepped it up for sure. Went to grad school. I'm living. I mean, it was like a shock to the system. I'm living in somebody's basement in Arkansas, going to the University of Arkansas. Single. I'm single. I'm like, now's the time for me to step it up to the next level if I want to be elite, if I want to really make a difference. The training at a was so good, though. I had a 4.0, I think, after two or three semesters in grad school. And my head of the department was like, listen, Eric, this is. We're glad we made the bet on you because it's working, but this is boring, isn't it? I was like, very. They're like, why don't you go do this physiology program in the animal science department? And it's like six or eight. It's like eight week chunks of like neurophys, endocrine fizz, blah, 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 blah. And honestly, I almost made a switch to go into medical school. I was like, you know what? I just love the science. So I took the um, MCAT, got a really good score. I ended up teaching for Kaplan and I was about to go do that. And I started thinking about what kind of relationship do I want to have with somebody? And I was doing rounds in the hospital and I couldn't stand it. One of our good friends, our common friend, David Nolan, was I was coming down to the Houston Medical Center. and I started doing some rotations with different people. I was like, I hate like coming in and going out. And that's when I decided that this wasn't for me. But... um. I think I finished my master's and PhD with like a three, nine or something like that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, but it was, I was really interested in it. I was self-directed and I had grown up a little bit, you know? Yeah. I'm by no means very smart. Uh, whatever.
1: <laughs> now, did you take a break between undergrad and graduate school or did you go straight to Arkansas?
0: Went right into it. Literally, I had to do a, a an internship to graduate. I talked to our head strength conditioning coach, Mike Clark, who is a legend in the field. He went on to be in the NFL forever. He's now at the Detroit Lions with Dan Campbell and all those guys, which is so cool to see all these Aggies. I talked to Aaron Glenn, I don't know, a couple months ago. It's just wild, like just how it all kind of came full circle. But anyways, he's like, here's a list of colleges where I know somebody to get you this internship. First one was a Arkansas picked up the phone. Hi, Coach Decker. My name is Eric Corum. I'm looking for an internship to graduate. Mike Clark. Rec- oh, Mike Clark. Yeah. When do you want to start? <laughs> that was it. That was it. I moved up there. I knew nobody. Somebody from Campus Crusade was like somebody's renting a room in their basement. And I just got in my car and moved to Arkansas.
1: Man. So there's something really important with that right there. You know, there's the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And yeah, as much as I hate to admit it, like there's so much truth in that. And The other thing that I think is so important to take from that is it's critical that people don't burn bridges like relationships, even if they're not close, you cross paths at some point with people again and again. And Mm. the way that you you treat people is so, so important.
0: I couldn't aim in that even more. And, you know, people you meet in college, like if I could go back and do it again, I probably would have been a little more present in certain parts of my life. But. I was doing a lot of things and I grew up in a different way. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, I had an investor call yesterday, I had a couple really awesome ones, and then one where I was just like getting just snarky, big timed. And every part of me was like, forget this guy. Like, but I was just kind and like, you never know. You just don't know. Like, don't burn. I literally went on a walk when it was over because I felt so belittled. And I was like, don't burn a bridge. Don't be a jerk. Send him what he asked for, knowing it's not going to go anywhere, but be the bigger person. And you're right. You don't want to in football when I was in that world forever. Everybody knows everybody. And it's a very small world. Yeah. And people are out to get each other. And, you know, but you treat people the right way. They're going to pick up a phone and make a call. You do the best you can. For sure.
1: So while you were at Arkansas, you're working with the team. You're getting your master's. You had decided that the medical route was definitely not the right route for you. At that Mm -hmm. point, was that the, hey, my trajectory is going to be working with college and, and pro teams?
0: Yeah, so I was already working with them through that internship. And then I got a graduate assistantship working as a strength conditioning coach, and they paid for grad school. While I was doing that, I don't know few months into it first four or five. So I'm learning on the go. I've also have an SEC softball and soccer team and tennis team. I'm responsible for training. So I'm kind of learning on the go, right? A uh, Coach walks in with these track athletes and was like, hey, do you want to train so-and-so? It was Veronica Campbell Brown. Veronica is an eight-time Olympic medalist, three-time Olympic gold medalist. It was the golden era of sprints at Arkansas. Tyson Gay, Wallace Spearman, Veronica Campbell, all these people were there. Omar Brown. So Veronica, I ended up becoming a big part of her performance team and traveled the world with her. In 2005, I went. Was it five? Five? Yes, I went to the World Championships of Track and Field in Helsinki, Finland, and um, that is where my view started changing because I started to see how the rest of the world was training their athletes, and in the U.S. we have a problem. We have too many good athletes. It's like if you're in Saudi Arabia and you got all this oil underneath your feet, are you like looking for green energy? No, you're just going to tap the floor, right? In the US, we got the biggest genetic blend and amazing population of athletes on the planet. There's very few countries that can rival us. Why is that a problem? Well, because we don't, if somebody gets hurt, you just throw in the next person. We are not actively looking for ways to maximize our talent. And so, especially back then, So I started traveling the world, and I started hearing about this stuff, this sport science, and these institutes of sport. And um, one of the coolest stories is Australia, massive landmass, small population. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's enormous, beautiful country. I believe it was 1978. I believe that was the year in the Olympics they finished like 50-something in the world in medal count. It was embarrassing. And they were like, enough's enough. We're going to do something about this. We're tired of always losing. So they instituted something called the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. That's where it started, which is their capital. And they brought together physiologists, coaches, biomechanists, everything under one building. And like, we're going to do everything we can to support these athletes and build them up. And that's where some of these massive technological innovations came from, like the athlete tracking that I brought. So anyways... They went from 50-something in medal count. By the 2000 Olympic Games, they were third in the world. Great Britain did the same thing leading up to the London Games, invested massive amounts of capital. And if you think about this, like Russia did this early on during the Cold War because winning was political warfare. China is doing the same thing right now. They are investing an absurd amount of money into their athletic programs, and they're hiring American coaches. Uh, They're bringing the best minds in the world to China. To help develop their athletes. And then they have these very sophisticated programs of finding youth athletes. And they put the it's some of it's very sad how they're doing this. Take them away from their families and just training. But um I was like, okay, without the unsavoriness of that, how can we bring this to the US? And so that was my mission is like, I want to bring another level of sophistication to training American athletes. But I figured out like we have to do this through data because my opinion versus Well, this is how we've always done it. I've been a coach for 25 years. You know, this is what we always done. This is what we're going to do. And I'm like, that is the dumbest answer to anything. Like there was no sophistication and thought process. It was just rinse and repeat. As a matter of fact, like if you look at all the coaches that have come out from Nick Saban that have been successful, there's very few as head coaches. Most of them have been terrific failures. Because I've seen it, one coach who was a head coach in the SEC literally took Nick Saban's manual, changed everything to the name of that school, comes in is like, "This is the Nick Saban program. This is what we're going to doing," and it didn't work for that those people at that time. So when you copy the model, you copy the errors. Interesting. Meanwhile, Nick Saban's iterating and moving forward. They're stuck trying to repeat the same thing at a different time, different place, different athletes, different budget, different everything. Nick is always changing and evolving. And there's certain principles that you can institute. Same in business. You know, you see it all the time. Well, they try to take this and put it. It just doesn't work. And so I think that is what's kind of helped set me up for this journey in business is like, I saw this in athletics, like, okay, great. You did that over there. That's awesome. It's not going to work here. And I've watched it and I've been part of like turnarounds. You've got to make it situationally relevant.
1: Real quick, you would have played Alabama a few times when you were in grad school at Arkansas. What was it like being across the sideline from Saban?
0: Well, when I was at Mississippi State, I worked for Sylvester Kroom, the first black head coach in the SEC, one of the greatest men I've ever been around in my entire life. There's an ESPN documentary called Kroom. You should watch it. When you watch it, I'm in the background in the locker room. I'm standing next to Coach Croom. So he never got the job at Alabama, even though he was an All-American. They had an award named after him, and he played and coached under Bear Bryant. Okay, if anybody would have not, if he would have been a different skin color, he would have been the head football coach at Alabama. Bar none, he would have been the head football coach. He's a legend. He's amazing. It's like if Dabo Sweeney wanted to go to Alabama and there's an opening. He'd probably get the job. Kroom was 5X different. As a matter of fact, Woody McCorvey, who is Dabo's receiver coach, was on our staff at Mississippi State. So anyways, Kroom puts together an amazing staff. Joe Judge, head football coach of the New York Giants, Shane Beamer, head coach of University of South Carolina, Freddie Kitchens, former head coach of the of Cleveland Browns. Like it, the roster is insane. My friend, who's player personnel director for Nick Saban, Jody Wright was my roommate. My current friend is uh, one of the scouting directors of the New York Giants. Like, it's crazy. Like everybody on the staff was like a who's who, but we were all young and he like just found talent, brought it to this. Mississippi State was a dump at that time. There was no place to go to the bathroom. He like it was. Right after Jackie Sherrill, he ends Shula's career by beating Alabama. The next season, Nick Saban is the head coach at Alabama. I'm getting chills right now. We're in the locker room, and he's like kind of choking up and crying a little bit. But he's like, Men, today you're going to change. I'm sorry, this is so amazing. You're going to change the way that people look at this university by playing a football game. And we went out and throttled Alabama and they like you know the score wasn't we beat them but it was like we physically imposed our will on them and you know ended up trying to I mean Saban tried to hire him we he was the SEC coach of the year the next year they fire him at Mississippi State yeah that tells you anything about how things work what year would that have been 2007 was the year that we he was SEC coach of the year 2008 they fired him and they brought in Dan Mullen but I've been on the opposite sideline of him, and you know, I've with the Texans. We practiced and played the Patriots. I don't know how many times.
1: So you you've had Saban and Belichick in the mix in your life. That sounds fun.
0: Yeah, they're both incredible thinkers. You know, they're very deep thinkers. They're you know, you see Nick go off here and there, but he really is most of the time very quiet. As a matter of fact, they keep everything calm over the headset. There is no calamity and everything is very strategic. They do everything in a very specific way to put people in a position where they can think and make decisions. There's a
1: lot to be said for that calm. I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. And if you ask my team, does Scott get animated? The answer would be an emphatic yes. (laughs) Mel's trying not to laugh over there in the corner.
0: And that's okay too. It just, if you're acting out of your emotions all the time, that's your default mode, that can be a problem. But as the CEO of the company, people need to feel your passion. They need to feel your enthusiasm. They also need to feel like, hey, when something isn't right, I mean, they also need to know that you got their back. And so I would also say like, that can also be a, an asset. Well,
1: people definitely know when I'm excited and when I'm <laughs> not excited. So, <laughs> all right. So today you run a tech company, yeah, Eric,
0: mm-hmm.
1: are you a techie? Are you a technology person?
0: I like technology. I can't write a lick of code. I tried to learn Python. Yeah. I would say I'm, technology is just, you know, it's an avenue to, to take an idea to me and to bring it to scale quickly and to and nowadays with technology, you can proliferate something quickly And you can have mass impact. And so, yeah, I mean, when I was at Florida State, the innovations I made were with technology. I'm not a data scientist. I think what I do is I look at the macro level of how something could be used. And I'm always trying to cut the baloney and get to how does somebody use this sophisticated thing in a way that's going to move the needle for them. So, yeah, I'm a technologist.
1: And what year was it that you were at Florida State and you brought the technology into the program?
0: 2011. Okay. So this is pre-Apple
1: Watch. I think that we had, you know, Fitbit was probably around. Jawbone was around for a little bit.
0: Jawbone and Fitbit were, yeah, for sure.
1: And there were probably a couple of others at the time, but this is pre-Apple Watch. And I think that this is the first time that the masses are even remotely thinking about fitness technology. Is that a fair statement?
0: Yeah. I mean, Fitbit was on the rise. People were really interested in tracking their movement. You know, it was a very unique... Concept, they did lose a massive amount in market cap. Their valuation went from about 10 billion to, I believe, they exited for a little over two to Google. And the reason for that is two things. One, I heard their CEO say they never move past data. People wanted to know what to do with this, and they never answered that for them. And then number two, because the utility was wearing off with, like, great. So I walked 8,000 steps. Apple shows up on the scene and says, we can do that and we can give you something that's sleek. It's beautiful and it has multi-use. And so people are like, I'm pivoting. So Google bought them for their data set. And um, it's interesting, the head of Fitbit for Google is on our advisory board. He's a fellow M1-er because he saw that we're kind of that data intelligence layer. We are the ones that are making, we're hardware agnostic, we make it useful. But yeah, like you saw this, early rise, you know, in the early to mid 2000s. And then Apple comes on the scene and Apple's like, whoa, now we got really cool access to health data, to activity data, or can measure your heart rate. We can tell you if you have an arrhythmia. Now it looks like uh, continuous glucose monitoring is on the horizon using optical sensors. And a patent was just filed by Apple for a ring, which would give them 24 hour HRV, which is a measure of how your body's adapting to stress. So I've got all these cool pieces of data streams that are coming in from all these different places, but nobody's really focused on the recommendation layer. And that's what we're focusing on.
1: You mentioned the ring. So real quick, I think the last time we saw each other, we had breakfast about a probably about this time last year, and I'm pretty sure you had an aura ring, an Apple watch and a whoop (laughs) all going. Are you still rocking multiple uh, devices?
0: Yes, I am. I mean, if it was up to me, I wouldn't do that. But I'm doing it so I can test. You know, you're a small team, and we're actually about to implement Aura, Garmin, Whoop, Samsung, it looks, hopefully, next month. So we're testing all of these things right now. And, you know, you have to make sure that the data is coming in in a certain way that you can then use it. And also, I'm really interested in their user interface, how they're Showing people the data, why is it that some of these companies are billion dollar companies and they really haven't moved from insight to actionable recommendations and there's learnings there. And so I wouldn't call Aura a competitor. They're more of an enabler. They could be in that competitive realm. I'd say Whoop may consider themselves there. They were, were nobody to them right now. But they're very insular ecosystem. But most, they're just enablers. Like Apple Watch, they build these technologies so you can build solutions with them, right?
1: Well, I think you touched on something that's really important. And as the head of a company, you need to drink your own champagne, as we say here at Ven. Right? So we say eat your dog food. Champagne sounds way better than dog food. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, knowing what your customers are experiencing from, hey, I'm mm-hmm. I'm sinking. AIM 7 to Aura for the first time, what is that experience like for the customer? You need to experience that for yourself. And it sounds like y'all are doing that.
0: Yeah. You got to have a really good product manager. I was doing a lot of that myself. And then as, as AIM 7's expanded, I have an excellent product manager who's actually a former professional golfer and he was actually coaching my dad and my dad's like, Hey, this guy, Charlie, super sharp. Went to William Mary, which is funny. That was like my last job in sports. That's a whole nother story. But he, he's like, this guy wants to be a product manager. He's like, could you want to talk to him? So he has no experience, but he's an excellent coach, like amazing coach. And he's super smart. So he started doing all this stuff with AWS and started kind of building those skill sets as he was transitioning from professional golf to this. And I was like, hey, here's a project. And he killed it and he gave another one and he crushed it and another one and he crushed it and he had this intuition about user experience and teaching somebody through this medium and his intuition is really strong and he can iterate really fast and come up with designs and another athlete and i'll tell you something buddy the other day we're going over you know i'm like hey listen like you have to get the minimal viable product of the feature that you, we want to test before we can go build the great, beautiful thing. We got to get the people are saying this, let's go test it out. And there was this point of friction because, you know, the UI is good people. It's easy to navigate, but we have a vision of where we want to go with this. But, you know, right now it's just getting it out there and getting in people's hands and making an impact. I could tell it was frustrating. He's like, I just want it to be like this perfect thing as an athlete. I got to have, I'm like, bro, some of the. Best products in the world. Okay. Chat G, I tested. Look at Chat GPT. I'm using this right now. Pulled it up on my screen. I was like, they don't even have a search function. I can't even expand the side part. You know, where like whatever your prompts are, basic stuff they're not doing. Why? The magic is in the box over to the right. And I was like, although those things drive me crazy and I have no idea why they haven't done that yet, you can't get a hold of customer support. They're worth, I don't know, $40, $50 billion. And it, to them, that's probably the MVP. Yeah.
1: We're, with that in particular, we're having a lot of conversations around the office about ChatGPT. As you should. But somebody had a great analogy in the last week or so. They said, it, this is like the internet in 1992. Mm-hmm. A lot of people you told them about it, they're like, eh, okay, what's that going to be good for? And I don't think that people are looking at Chat GPT saying, what's that going to be good for? I think that people just don't know what to do with it. Much like in 1992, we couldn't envision taking our smartphone and unlocking our door or changing our thermostat or talking to the delivery person on our ring camera, you know, from halfway around the world. I think that, you know, two years from now, five years from now, we're going to see the revolution like we did in the early days of the Internet.
0: I think people are speeding up. The applications, because we're more tech forward now, the average person doesn't understand yet. But for companies that are forward thinking, it's not just chat GPTs, these large language models, as you understand what's sitting underneath it. And there are things I'll tell you, Scott, I mean, I don't care. I'll share this here. When I first had my vision for AIM7, Mark Hadar is on our board. He uh, is the CEO Co-founder of Dialexa, a big company in Dallas that just had a big exit to IBM, one of the best dev houses in the world. He owns a company called Vinley. And he and I were in this group called the Presidential Leadership Scholars. It was an amazing experience. And through that, I told him I was doing Name 7. He's like, make a journey map. I'm like, what is that? He's like, go figure it out. So I come back and I made this journey map and I, I have it. I could show it to you. I was like, the ultimate vision of what this is, is you come to a computer screen with a blank interface. And it's like, how can we help you on your health and wellness journey? And you just tell it what you want it to do. And then it starts building this structure out for you. And I showed this to somebody recently, like, holy crap. And he looked at it. He was like, yeah, this is great, but this doesn't exist. Well, the potential for it does now. And so those large language models can't do what we're asking them to do. Like if you ask Chappie GPT to make you a, it'll give you the tenants of a nutrition program, but there's no nuance. Go get me an exercise. It's whatever the internet has. And so it could get really, really hurt if you followed it. But the ability to interact like this, if you build on top of it and you train the model with your IP, that can get really interesting.
1: So let's dive a little bit more into AIM seven. So you've taken all these learnings, you've seen what the data can do. And now you have this idea to take that further. And maybe like, what was that moment that you were like, boom, this is the idea. I got to run with this.
0: Yeah. When we wanted to see if we could predict somebody's energy level and we used some unique machine learning methodologies and we beta tested there. Right? I mean, it was just like, I had 20 people logging data. And we ran these models and we could predict their energy and mood state. And we had very clearly defined rules that led to outcomes. And we had it externally validated and we're like, crap, this is real. And then I showed it to Mark and Mark's like, dude, this is really interesting.
1: Now, when you developed that, were you still coaching? Uh Had you actually filed and started the company yet? Or was this like just a little, hey, I'm going to just.
0: It was an idea. It had the worst name ever. What was the first name? Optum. I don't think that's bad. It wasn't, I guess it was just cheesy. I don't think
1: it's bad at all.
0: Yeah. A buddy of mine was, we were working on it together. And that's when I was like, okay, I brought it to Mark and Mark was like, you got something here. You need to go build this thing. And I'm like, oh gosh. And, you know, he wrote me a check and I was like, I want to be on your board. And he was the first person that believed in me. I look back on what I didn't know just two and a half years ago. Like, I didn't know anything, like nothing. And what I thought I knew, I didn't know. I'd never built a product like that. I'd never started, gone from zero to one. I'd gone from one to two, right? But I never really started with a blank slate. And so I started reading books like Lean Startup Methodology and just tried to do it the best I could. I had some people that were trying to help me. But I, you know, one of the hard things was I didn't have a full time team. And it was very lonely and I didn't have elite talent. Engineering talent was bad and that led to a lot of problems.
1: And real quick, just from a timeline standpoint, it's 2023. You said you started this two and a half years ago. So we're middle of 2020 pandemic.
0: I'm testing it in 2020, November of 2020. I moved back to Houston So I was in Virginia, complete lockdown, like complete lockdown. You can't go anywhere. I come back to Texas. People are like, you're trying to start a company. Yeah.
1: Get it off the ground in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. And you can't even leave your house. And oh, by the way, after the first few months of the pandemic, all the tech companies saw the need to build and improve things, to do deliveries and offer more cloud services. All the developers Were hired by Google and Amazon and Facebook and Apple, and you can't pry them away. So you had a lot of tenacity to pursue this.
0: Yeah, or stupidity. I don't know. Like I didn't really know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. It was not, it was a world I hadn't played in yet. And, you know, I couldn't get it. I had a co founder. That's a whole other story. We're still really good friends. It was just some market things. Anyways, I didn't have those engineers. And it's like trying to play football without a good quarterback. Like, it doesn't matter how good your team is. You're not going anywhere. And man, there was a year and a half there of like intense frustration on my end.
1: And is this your full-time job at that time?
0: Yeah. I'm not making anything. I mean, I think I paid myself 40 grand for like 18 months. Yeah, I was living off my savings I had a certain amount of money I was just not going to touch, right? It was like, this is like my fail-safe money right here. My wife believed in it. And um, what it originally started as is not what it is right now. It's not even really close. It is, but it's not. I didn't know how to go out and pitch. I didn't know how to like create this story arc that these investors wanted to see. I had family and friends giving me money because they believed that I was going to just figure this out. And um, it didn't raise a ton of money and then did an MVP. It was a text messaging service. And it was like, we're sucking in data. And I was literally daily texting people what to do.
1: Like you're reading the report and in the morning, Eric's sitting down and.
0: Hours every morning. It was like a, it was on a web-based interface and um, people were getting really good results.
1: Real quick. What would your product manager have said about that?
0: That's the right thing to do. Okay. I mean, when it's an MVP, it's got to be non-scalable and you got to just see if the thing works. And there's a guy who was a founder of Anthos Capital. His name is F. Martin and his daughter, Julia, was helping me. She was on our team. She actually was helping full-time, but she didn't really have a technical background, but she was a hustler, like just worked really hard. And F. had helped. I mean, he helped bring Microsoft, Apple, and some microsystems public. And he was one of the beta, the alpha MVP testers. And he was like, Eric, if you can bottle this up into an app, you've got lightning in a bottle. I was like, okay, we've got something here. Then it was, let's package this up into an app. Well, I thought that, you know, people said they wanted to sleep better. They wanted to have more energy. They wanted this, this, and this. So I'm just going to give them the recommendations to get there. Well, that didn't work. We found that there was like, First of all, the tech wasn't working right because I had a back end engineer that wasn't good. He had over engineered the solution to another level. And I'll tell you that story, that story a little bit later. But my assumption was, you know, people said this is what they want, but I found that there was this feature in the app they kept hitting called exercise recommendation. Like tell me how hard and how long I should go today. And the people that did that started getting results. And there was no score. There was no none of this stuff. And so I'm like, okay, these are the things that are creating value for people. If I want to get them to here, I've got to create some immediate value. And what we really kind of, we ended up, we did this alpha test. We had about 250, 300 people in the app. And like, I think you were at the early part of that. And we had this attrition dropping off, dropping off, dropping off, dropping off. And then we started changing things. And guess what? People started sticking and it just started going up and up and up and up. And I'm talking to these people, I don't know, every week, hours every week. And they're like, hey, if you would do this, if you do this, well, why are you sticking around? Well, this thing is making an impact. Well, this thing is okay. We're getting the signal and the noise, right? So in May of 2021, 2022, we stop on that and we get ready to build this beta product and we re-engineered this thing and it is just flat out not working. I go and get a front engineer who came from, he I was recommended by the Buyers Institute at Stanford and he is a stud crushing it on the front end. He's built multiple top 100 apps in the app store. Back end is not working. I raised a good amount of capital, had some really big investors hop in. They saw the version that we were building at the time and they're like, this is actually really good for the little dollars that you have had. And we got an injection of capital And I had somebody come in and look at the back end. They're like, this is the most beautifully written code, but it doesn't work. Now the market's changing, right? So like you said, these engineers are starting to become available. And I go nab a guy who used to be at Vinley. He believes in this, takes a look at it, comes on board, starts solving some problems. Long story short, we had a pivotal moment. Our front engineer... We had an injection of capital and we're like, we got to rebuild the rules logic and where it's coming from. He stepped up the plate and did it himself in six weeks. Wow. I didn't even know this was possible. Latency is like zero. It's moving lightning fast. And we're like, holy cow. We start getting this into people's hands. They're paying for it. And now it's doing what we want it to do. So what we do is here's the big thesis, right? If you want to address the most common preventable lifestyle diseases in America, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity that are causing, we're spending $4.5 trillion a year on in the U.S. Like over half of these cases are preventable. You have to change fundamental behaviors. Okay. And even bigger than that, our goal is, is like stress is rampant. But stress is not the problem. It's our inability to adapt to stress. That is what causes mental and physical health problems. Acute stress is the gateway to growth. If you want to get physically fit, you need to go exercise. That's a stress around the body. If you want to learn a new skill so your brain can change, you have to go deliberately engage in learning. Going back to the athlete stuff, the best athletes in the world are highly adaptable. So we're like, how can we improve somebody's capacity to adapt to physical and psychological stress so they can thrive? So what we're teaching people is, is how to build something called adaptive capacity. And there are five pillars, sleep, exercise, mental fitness, nutrition, and living in a community or fostering healthy relationships. So we're an inch deep or an inch wide and mile deep on three of them, exercise, sleep, and mental fitness. So the AIM-7 app will tell you exactly how hard, how long to exercise each day, and actually the type of exercise that you should do. That's a unique technology that we actually built in 2015 when I was at Kentucky. That is delivering tremendous results and rapidly improves fitness. If you follow the fluid recommendations, you will see a significant increase in fitness, and it dramatically reduces injuries and burnout. Now we've gotten to the point from the mental fitness side is we can assess your psychological state and we will push you an intervention based off of where you're at. So if you're stressed, we'll send you the precise breath work tool to use. If your mood is down, we send you a gratitude intervention. That has been, people are all over that. That's been a really surprising thing to me. And then we give you sleep recommendations. But then what we do is, so it's you get these acute things, but after a week, we do just like we would do with an elite athlete. We go through all your data and we're like, here's the one area you need to focus on that's going to lead to the biggest change in your physical and mental health. And then we create a unique small little goal about that around that. And then we have these different levels, level one, two, three, we move people up. So we've gamified it. We've turned it into this long-term behavior change app. And it's working. It is working. People are getting the results that they wanted. But where we started off and where we are now are two different places. But then this is the unlock. So that alone right there, a consumer application, let's say it's worth, like, you could build it to a $500 million company, right? What we found was is that we're building algorithms and models that we can license to other people. So you've ever heard of, like, F45? So... One of the guys that owns a bunch of these studios is like, hey, Eric, we have a burnout problem. I'm like, well, no crap. Like you take people off the street, you throw them in, Orange Theory, whatever. Not bad workouts. It's just like if you're not prepared, people are going to get burnout. Or if you're always going as hard as you can every day, that's a recipe for disaster. So we built a feature and tested it and it was working. We were regulating their training sessions every day based off of how their body was adapting. Well, then we found the real problem. I'm like, what's your conversion rate like? It's like, well, if we can get people to three workouts and the fir- to do three workouts in their seven day free trial, we convert 80% of people. I'm like, well, great. What's your real problem? I mean, what's your real conversion rate? They're like 20%. I'm like, okay. So we built using knowledge that we have from the app, we built a methodology where somebody signs up for a class, they get a quick text message, they fill out a quick survey, we stratify them into risk categories. And then we pipe the coaches like, hey, Scott's first day. He's moderately high risk for this. Here's exactly how hard he should go today. These are the exercises that need to change in his circuit. In over five months, we improved their conversion rate by 50% consistently. It's about $125,000 of new revenue per location. And there's 1,700 of these worldwide. So we got approved as an international vendor by F45 and MindBody and the platform solutions rolling out. So we've had multiple companies now reaching out going, hey,
1: we want some of that too.
0: Uh huh. So we have B2C, then we have B2B with a long-term vision on enterprise payers. So if we can demonstrate with large enough data sets that we can help take somebody that's not hitting the government standards for exercise and they can hit those and stay there. And they can maybe go from, I'm only sleeping six hours a night to seven hours a night you do those two things, you lower all cause mortality by 60 percent. What happens to work productivity? Your insurance premiums come down. What company would not give this to their employees And so that's where our long-term vision frame seven is is like payers who wouldn't want to get a cut off their insurance premium by trading? you've got so You would go
1: to the Blue Cross Blue
0: Shields of the world or United Healthcare, Kaiser. That's the goal. We ha- you know, If we have a model of 5,000 people, we have a model for one standard deviation of the U.S. population. That's strong enough with great enough accuracy. That's why we have... I just brought in our new COO is the head of data and machine learning for the largest performance company in the world, Exos, 4,000 employees. He just came in as our... He was the VP. Start, stood up all digital products, ML, data science. He's just come in, starts Monday as our COO. We just pulled off somebody that ran international partnerships for gym pass because all of a sudden they're looking at this like nobody's playing in this space. So we're the recommendation layer. And like I said before, 125 million Americans have a wearable and they're getting cheaper and they're proliferating. 60% of American households have these now. So we're like, we're going to use the app as a place where we will deliver tremendous value for folks. And we'll build models. We do not sell your data. Your data is yours. We intensely believe in data privacy, but we will build models that we can then use. Does that make sense? And then we'll go sit behind. I mean, there's some companies. There are like thirty billion dollar companies that have reached out to us about like, hey, would you help us with this problem? And we're like, yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so real quick on the the data and not selling it. Yeah. Is the idea that you anonymize and aggregate the data?
0: Oh, yeah. You have to do that right now. So there's in the system, you're like a long string of characters. And that's another reason why I brought in Dr. Gerald Jackson, our new COO is like, we want to be, we want to have the highest standards in that area. So really try to get to GDPR here in the U S and make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row. Cause one of our core values is stewardship. And we believe that if you're going to come into our system, that we should be a great steward of your data. So we're not going to sell it like that. I'm not doing that.
1: One of our core values is responsible stewardship as well. So that's cool.
0: Oh, there you go. Financially and then with data, you know.
1: So I want to go back to kind of you starting the company. You had all this knowledge about fitness. You had this knowledge about how to use technology to improve the fitness, but I think it's safe to say you hadn't really worked in a business environment before. Is that a fair statement?
0: I mean, outside of being in high school and yeah, I mean, it wasn't like I'd never been in the corporate world as a profession. No,
1: I got to imagine that working with professional sports teams. I mean, you're not in the back office, right? You're working with the team.
0: You interface, but no. Yeah.
1: So you're taking knowledge that you have about one area, but you've got to figure out, how to turn that into a product. And oh, by the way, how do I run a business? Mm-hmm. What was that like for you outside of the product?
0: You know, it's not like we have millions in revenue right now and all that kind of stuff. So it's scaling slowly and at a pace, it's measurable, right? And it's like, it's okay. I need a person for this. i so bring them in. I got a person for this. And, and like Gerald's coming in to run operations. Like we've hit a point where it's like, I need somebody for that. Okay, so Gerald's got that. I got a front end and a back end. It's like, I look at it like a sports team. What players do I need on the field? And we have all these terms in football. There's certain positions like quarterback. You got to have a great quarterback. You're not winning. There are other positions. We have somebody like, we call them glue guys. Maybe they're not the most elite at their skill, but maybe they have other things. They're going to gel the organization. So like, okay, I've got a great front end engineer. I have a great back end engineer now. Check. I have a good product manager. He's up and coming. Is he like, did he go build, you know, whatever famous, you know, consumer app? No, but he has the aptitude. He's a great team player and he's, he works his butt off. Great. Check. I need somebody for operations that can sit across these two things. I went out and recruited that guy, right? Brought him into the organization. So now I got a quarterback over here. I got a good running back. I got a good center. My right guard is, you know, he's a glue guy, but he's getting better. It's like a three-year... I'd look at it like that, you know? My job is morphing more into what I want it to be, which is putting the players on the field and letting them do their jobs and making sure that we are very strategic. There are things in football that carry over. Do we have core values? Do we have guiding principles? Do we have, a, you know, the weekly sprints? That's football. Every week, you're playing a game. As a matter of fact, I think I'm a little bit harder on myself and the team than other people would be because I'm always thinking like every week is like game day. You know, I've instituted some things like EOS to help us with like our one-year vision, our three-year when I learned OKRs. That was a big unlock. We've gotten a lot better at that, at grading ourselves. So a lot of these things I feel like I naturally had the capability for and were honed by watching elite organizations and bad organizations. Great teams were always in complete alignment. I've had to let people go already at aim seven. I've learned to trust my gut. As soon as I get that feeling, it's over with. We're going to cut it off. I'm trying to be even more thoughtful. in the like, there's people that we've kind of like started a dating relationship movie, And I'm like, no, nope, this isn't working out. Like, do they exhibit our core values? Do they act those out in their behaviors? Are they a team player? Do they see the vision? Are they going to push this thing to the next level? Or do they care about their family? You know, we're dispersed, which is really hard. We're asynchronous and we're raising another round of capital right now. Soft tech just let us off with a nice investment to have a $40 million fund here in Houston. So that's great. Once we finish that round, like I'm going to get the whole team together here in Houston. And then we're going to make sure it's quarterly that we're getting together. And then maybe I need to make a flight out to Irvine and meet with Gerald like every month or every six weeks. But those things you got to just navigate around. We're in a new world, you know, as far as like the opportunity to acquire talent and being dispersed.
1: Did you have a mentor or mentors that kind of walked alongside you and kind of guided you like, and maybe kind of tangential to that? Like, as you were starting the business, did you know what questions to ask about running the business and starting? And
0: Not really. I started, I did like anything else. I'm a person that goes straight immersion. I listen to every podcast, got every book. I think I listened to thousands of hours of podcasts. It's a great way to learn. Every time I was exercising, I now listen. When I hear music for certain podcasts, it brings me back to a certain part of my journey. You know, 20 VC was really helpful for me to understand the venture capital landscape. I would listen to product podcasts, growth podcasts, sales podcasts. I would try to go look at people that started small businesses, people that have you know, scaled big. I now have strategic mentors in different parts of my life that have actually invested in the company. Like one guy, Brent Smolik, he's on the board of Marathon Oil. He's run billion-dollar companies. He's an investor. And when we sat down, he's like, listen, Eric, I've never done a startup. It's different. I've run billion-dollar organizations, but this is different. However, he made a really good point to me. We're talking about goals because it was right around December. I'm like, you know, making the year. He's like, listen, if the goal is 10, 8 plus a story does not equal success. I was like, you're damn right. I was like, amen to that, because like in football, like you either have a trophy or you don't like you either have the ring. There's no like, oh, well, we played. No, like you won or you lost. And I've had to like get very clear with people like we either win or we lose we either help this person or we don't help this person. And, you know, like when we make strategic goals, like, you know, we use OKR, so it's a stretch objective. But when I go back to the board, like I gave them a board some stuff and they're like, no, 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 no. Go back, go back. That's not realistic. Go back. That like they've been helpful to me. But then they've also like a couple times I've been chewed out, you know, rightfully so, because there's a fiduciary responsibility there. Not that I was doing anything that was irresponsible. It's just like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so, making mistakes is okay. You have to memorialize those and you have to learn from them. So, something our team is doing now, which you may like, Scott, I don't know if you do this or not, but I'm standing up a notion document. And on every Friday, everybody has to write down something that they've learned and they're going to share it with the organization. So, we memorialize our learnings because there's something called information operations. And in any, like, it's a military term. But, like, if information gets stuck at any level, it's the death of an organization. So you want to make sure those things are being shared. And so, like, as my engineers are learning something or Charlie's learning something or Andrea's learning something about communications, how can everybody else learn alongside them? And so I want to be like, I want an organization to learn faster, to be way, like, we're teaching people how to be adaptable. We got to be adaptable. And that includes me, my you know, as the leader. So, yeah, there's a lot of things I didn't know. And thank God people like they invested in, I, you know, as humbly as I can say this, they just invested in the thought that Eric's going to figure this out. And hopefully we do. You know, my every night when I go to bed, almost every night, I am thinking of the people that wrote checks. It's a heavy burden.
1: But it's a healthy thing, too, to keep you in check.
0: Yeah. Like I don't spend on stupid stuff. They know that I took a hit personally, financially. I mean, I'm still not making a lot of money. Doesn't matter, right? Like, we're okay. Like, we're we're living and our kids are fine. You know what I'm saying? But I told my wife before this year, like, sometimes you have a gut feeling about something. And I was like, we are about to hit an inflection point. It's coming. And it's starting to do this. And it's like, you're just like, oh, baby, like, we just got to keep. Stay with it, stay. And then when the stories come in and then people are like, hey, uh, we have a I talked to somebody this morning. It's like, hey, we have an organization of two million people. We have a massive email list. It's a veterans organization. Like, we think your product could really be helpful for them. Would you like to partner? We're like, yes. You know, those things start popping up because people have used it and they're like, oh, I see the value. This could really be helpful for our mental health. Of course, it could be or the physical health, you know, whatever. So. You just got to be prepared for it, though. One thing Dennis Francioni always said, which I will always remember, he said, prepare for your opportunity, lest your opportunity embarrass you. I thought it was brilliant. And he said yeah. it in his little friend voice, but it stuck <laughs> with me. Like, I'm about to go on the road here. Uh, we're about to do demo days in Dallas, Austin, and Houston. There's going to be tons of investors there for this soft tech Venture Studio I'm part of. Every day I'm doing my pitch. I'm doing visualization. I'm, you know, I'm training for when something goes wrong. And I'm preparing for that opportunity to go up there and crush it and to show people, like, we got a great team. We got a great product. Like, you know, if you're going to put your money somewhere, please put it here. Oh, that's awesome, man.
1: Thanks. So two and a half years in, mm-hmm. what's been the biggest surprise?
0: How hard this is. I mean, it is really really hard. It's harder than anything I've ever done. Because when I was in football, it's like, you start with a budget. There is nothing. Zero. And it costs a lot of money to build technology. And if you don't have the skill set, those people are expensive. You know, I think you kind of be a little bit naive and you think, well, if I have this thing, people are going to want it. Well, that's the worst way to go about it. Find out what they want and then give them that thing. And it's going to take a lot of iterations. There's, It's not just you're not going to turn on this marketing funnel and it's going to work. You got to do a lot of data analysis. You got to be very introspective on where your weaknesses is. You got to continually do a SWOT analysis. It's just hard. It's just freaking hard. But I see the we are, you know, I learned this blue ocean concept a couple of years ago. And I was like, that's the blue ocean. We're swimming towards this recommendations world that doesn't, people are going to go there. But nobody's swimming there right now that I know of. Maybe I think there's one company that I can point to that's like they're going after the same thing.
1: So I think it's safe to say that the company you are today is not the company you started out to be. Uh That's that adaptability. On a personal note, when you came to the conclusion in your own mind that this was what you wanted to do, what was that first conversation like with your wife? Hey, honey, here's what I want to do.
0: I was testing it all along, and she's learned to deal with ambiguity. She honestly was just like, if you believe this is what we're supposed to do, and I just prayed about it, and I felt like it was what we were supposed to do. And she jumped in both feet. Doesn't mean it wasn't scary. There was one point we had $9,000 left in the Aim 7 bank account, and I thought it was over. And then we had a somebody come in, a former NFL head coach, wrote a check for $200,000. And then it just started going up, you know, and it's hard. It's really, really hard. Now we're generating revenue, but I'm like, all right, we have these objectives. We got to hit these points and you can't be just so objective oriented. You have to be production oriented too. It's great to have these objectives, but if you aren't shipping, nothing's happening. So we are, we ship really fast, which is kind of cool. If
1: someone were starting a business today. Mm what one piece of advice would you give them?
0: Go get a co-founder. Interesting. I would say get a co-founder. It has been a very difficult road for me because I didn't have a CTO to start. If I would have had a CTO that was highly skilled with the skill, I think we would be much further ahead. Now I have all those pieces in place. It just took a lot longer. I would definitely have a co-founder. Unless it's a knowledge-based company where like you are the expert and it's like a lifestyle business where you can produce something, that's totally different. But if you want to build something at scale, you need a co-founder.
1: Well, for people who want to learn more about AIM7, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Yeah, AIM7.com, AIM7.com. Email me, Eric at AIM7. I have a podcast too called The Blueprint. You know, it's kind of our marketing ideas like I want to go serve people that are busy and time poor. So we deliver cutting edge science, leadership and life skills in these like 10, 15 minute shows. So that's been a blast because I've been able to this show grow and we've grown significantly. I think we're in the top 2% of all podcasts now. I get to go out and curate some of the best in the world. And bring them on the show and pick their brains and then try to bring that to other folks. And it's really, it's been a lot of fun. So yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff. But if I can be of service to you in any way, please reach out. I would just say, Scott, like, it's really cool to see what you've done as a husband, as a father, as a business leader, like all these things, you know, I didn't really know, you know, you know, you in college. I didn't know your aspiration and your dreams and your vision. For your life, but it's really cool to see that you and Elise are still, how many years of marriage? 20? 19. 19. Like that's real commitment. And then when you kind of told me you were going out, I was like, you're going to make it work. And you have. And it's really cool to be here to watch this journey. And I don't know if I can ever help you in any way, but if I can, <laughs> I'm here to help.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And man, watching what you've done, I'm so stinking proud of you. I think about the, the people that we were. 20 years ago and, you know, what's happened since, man, you've done awesome well, thank and you. I'm excited for you guys real quick. You're also very active on Instagram yeah. and not only are you posting frequently, but you've always got some really great tip. <laughs> and in fact, it was as you were really building up your presence on Instagram that I reached out and that's kind of how we reconnect. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. So check them out on Instagram. What's your handle out there?
0: It's at Eric Quorum. I've started doing, I'm an author for Inc too. So I do Eric Quorum on everything, Twitter, LinkedIn. I really, really appreciate that. It's my way of just serving and, and how, create, like, I will say one thing. One of the things I did early, which I think is helping now is I started to build an audience. And I did that. I didn't really offer anything. It was just like knowledge and help the best I could. And I would say, if you're in business, If it's B2B, go build stuff for free and serve people. If it's B2C, go serve them and develop that know, like and trust factor where they can come to you as a trusted resource so that when you have the thing, you can offer it to them. Um, And I don't think there's anything manipulative about that, that's marketing, but I think if you do it with a genuine heart, like man, lives have been impacted. It's crazy because of social media, like people will reach out and they'll share everything. And it's just, it's a really cool place to be. So yeah, at Eric Quorum on all the different platforms.
1: That was my friend, Eric Corum, founder and CEO of AIM7. To learn more about connecting your wearable data for feeling and performing at your best, visit AIM7.com. That's AIM7.com. Also, be sure to check out Eric's podcast, The Blueprint, where he talks about physical and mental health with industry experts. One more plug for my friend. He's definitely worth following on Instagram where you can get more insights on your health in short, easy to digest posts. His Instagram handle is simply Eric Corum. Note that is Eric with a K. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.